Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 23 this morning. We're continuing our study in Exodus. It's the last sermon in what you would call a portion of the book that's called the Book of the Covenant. God gave his people the Ten Commandments, and then he gave them the Book of the Covenant, which is kind of an application of how to live out his law in various areas of life. And as much as these laws teach us something about the character of God, they also teach us what God desires for those who have been saved by his grace. Uh, Here's a strong emphasis on the concept of, of loyalty to the Lord. And so we pick up Exodus chapter 23. We'll read verses 10 through 33. And as we read, I want to remind you that all of this is God's word. It is the only infallible rule that we have for faith, what to believe and practice, how to live from what we believe. Beginning at verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat, and what they eat, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips." Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before me, before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Verse 20 Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. And obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them. Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. 
And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Here's God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, as we approach your word, uh, we, we begin by thanking you for it. And we begin by praying that you would be willing to speak to us through it. That you would grant to us the ministry and help of your Holy Spirit. So that we would know you as you are revealed in your word. Would you once again wield in your hand an ordinary sinful crooked stick. That you might point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You recognize, of course, that all they'd ever known was slavery, bondage, backbreaking work. They'd never had any future or any hope. And now they are offered a promised land with plenty of food and plenty of drink. They're, they're offered a land where there is no illness, where there is no miscarriages, where there is no infertility. It's a huge promise. It's akin to an all-expenses-paid trip to a land of delight. A land of delight. If they will follow his lead. If they will do what he says, he will drive out their enemies in a slow, methodical way so that they will gradually fill the land. And every battle that they fight along the way is a guaranteed victory. And in the end, there will be no competition for the land There will be no threats. God says you'll have space, you'll have freedom, you'll have joy, you'll have delight. All you have to do is obey my voice. The Bible upholds what we might see here as a a pretty careful tension. And it's a tension which is meant to drive you to God's grace. God is generous and he's good, but he also demands loyalty. He demands faithfulness. That's comforting and terrifying. Terrifying if you know yourself, and even as you read this passage of Scripture, you begin to go, oh, I don't know. This is the same lesson the Hebrew people have been learning for several months. The God of the universe is not a man-made idol. His character is multifaceted. So there is this extravagant, generous grace And yet he demands a covenant loyalty and faithfulness. And it's got to be total. And if you misplace or put an overemphasis on one or the other, if you think he's just generous, you'll trample on his grace. You'll treat him like he's a cosmic Santa Claus. If you think he's only demanding, you'll fail to see that this is a God who's willing to receive the lost, willing to welcome the filthy, willing to welcome the sinful. So one pastor equates this particular text with a family trip to Disney World. Hey kids, surprise, we're taking you to Disney. There's the Magic Kingdom, there's Epcot, there's Universal Studios, video games, rides, food, souvenirs. It's gonna be a great trip. And yet in order for this to be a great trip, you need to listen to your parents. Don't sit on your sister. Don't punch your brother. Don't pester each other just to pester each other. Listen to your mom and dad. Is that so hard? 
And yet somehow in the 16-hour drive to Disney, it's hard. But this principle is true everywhere, isn't it? The principle is true everywhere. Everything in life that you enjoy comes with some parameters, some rules, some guidelines that are meant to maximize your delight. And so it is with God's promises. So the passage that we just read teaches us that God's people enjoy his promises through an active participation. So let's break down the text in these three points. God's pattern, your attention. Number two, God's presence, your action. Number three, this physical battle and a spiritual picture. So we start with God's pattern and your attention. Verses 10 through 12 deal with Sabbath instructions. And then verses 14 through 17 deal with three annual feasts. And these are God's pattern. It's basically God taking their calendar and saying, I'm going to make sure that you see these and they are marked out every single year. Why? So that the whole of your calendar will be marked as a reminder of our relationship. Verse 10 begins with this pattern that happens in the very dirt in which they live. He says, work this field for six years, let it lie fallow in the seventh year. Why? So that the poor among you can have something to eat. It's also going to be good for the wild animals. We recognize this was a staggered rotation so that not every field was fallow in every single year. That's better, of course, for the needy and for the animals. This is a pretty simple but profound picture of the heart of God. Here's a civil law given by God so that even when people dwelt in poverty or had struggles, there was always something to fill their stomachs. Are you hungry? Go find a a fallow field and gather from the grain that's there. It's out there. And so in national Israel, the heart of God is on display. There's no need for long lines of government handouts so that you can get your bag of oatmeal. Nothing like that. There's no one lying around waiting for someone to toss them a quarter so that they go and get something to eat. God figured that out. It's out there. Go grab it. Which caused the people of God to be thinking about those who had need. And then he comments about this Sabbath pattern again, but this time it's related to the days. Verse 12, six days you work, the seventh day you rest. And the Sabbath, which we've talked about, means to cease. You can tell right here, as one pastor said, that the Sabbath was not just something that the people owed to God. It was actually something that they owed to one another. They were slaves in the nation of Egypt. The Israelites never once had a rest. God says that sin will not be repeated in the nation of Israel. Why? Because the laws say something about the heart of the law giver. We should be very clear. This is not a hard, driving, brutal, cruel dictator. This is a God who looks at his people and says, I want you to have refreshment. I want you to have restoration. I care about your well-being so much so that I'm weaving it into the very pattern of creation. Of course, there's also a worshipful purpose to this. The Sabbath provides for God's people an actual covenant renewal. They come back. And every time they come back, they recognize my whole heart, my whole love is meant to be given to the Lord. Imagine, of course, if every single week you had a renewal of your marriage vows to your spouse. 
Your marriage would be the primary thing on your mind. Well, God says that that marriage is really important, but nothing is more important than the relationship that you have with me. And so I want to make sure that every single week you come back and you remember this is the relationship that matters the most. Now look at verse 14. Three times a year you shall keep a feast, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of the harvest, the feast of ingathering. And for us, it's really much more important to understand what these feasts mean than it is to, to delve into the details The Feast of Unleavened Bread was introduced to us back in chapter 11 through 13. And that is that God planned the entire Hebrew calendar around the Exodus. He planned it as the first month of the year. This is the springboard from which everything else flows. Why? Because that's the month I delivered you. That's the month that you came to know I'm the God who frees you. So right after this Passover, the 14th day, that lamb is sacrificed And it's a blood sacrifice. And it says only blood makes it possible for me, a holy God, to pass over your sins. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes day 15. It goes through day 21. And that feast means this. Leaven in the Bible is symbolic for sin. So God's saying, I saved you from the death that your sins deserve now. For those of you who are trusting in me, you celebrate this feast by saying, we want to get the leaven. We want to get the the sin out of our lives and live devoted to the Lord. What's the message? God's making sure they know once a year, be sure to remember, I am God your Savior, and I am going to transform you. Second feast is this feast of the harvest. It's later called the Feast of Weeks. In the New Testament, this is the feast that's called the Feast of Pentecost. And it comes in early summer when the grain is beginning to be harvested. So they they cut the first sheaves of the wheat. They wave it before the Lord. And what they are doing is celebrating the fact that the Lord has given them food to eat at the very beginning of the agricultural cycle. It's an acknowledgement that everything from here forward comes from God. And so it's a celebration. The Lord is my provider. And so the message is clear to them. You trust in the Lord because he is the one who takes care of you. And then the last feast that's mentioned is this feast of ingathering. This occurs at the the autumn or the fall of the year. It's a feast that commemorates the whole of the agricultural year. Why would they do that? Because it's God who caused all their crops to grow. It's the Lord who's caused them to be able to harvest and gather in everything that he's given to them. What's the point? Well, the feast is making this declaration. It is God who sustains you and cares for you. This is why this feast later is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Because these people were to go out for seven days and set up a tent and live in the tent. Why? Because for 40 years in the wilderness, God sustained them and took care of them with such detail and care. What's the message? It's the Lord and Him alone who gives you everything that you need throughout this life. So you've got these Sabbath instructions, and then you've got these instructions about a feast, patterns that are given to us by God, regular reminders of this covenant relationship. I'm going to be the God who meets your needs. And then in the middle of those instructions, what one commentator calls, I think, the climax of this whole book of the covenant, chapter 21 through 23, it's in verse 13. Look at it. 
pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Why does he need to say this here? Because all of the idol-worshiping people that they're about to encounter, and let me be really clear, they're going to go to the land of Canaan, and this is not about ethnic cleansing. It's not anything racial at all. In fact, it's about people who are worshiping a false god, and the Lord Yahweh says, that's my land for you. You push them out because I intend to establish my spot here on the earth. But he says something else. They're all looking for gods to be a savior. They're looking for gods to rescue them from awful life circumstances, to improve their circumstances. They're looking for gods who will be for them a provider, a God to make their crops grow, a God to make their animals reproduce, a God to literally put food on their table. Thirdly, every pagan that you're going to encounter in this promised land is looking for a God to to take care of them, to sustain them through the whole of this life they're looking for all those things and this sabbath and these feasts are meant so that when you get to that promised land you realize Yahweh's all we need I don't need another God at all there's no reason to look for lesser gods if the Lord takes care of me you see in the exodus God didn't save his people so they could run their own lives He didn't save them so they could do whatever they wanted to do. He saved them so they would serve him and worship him. God says, make sure you understand that every idol worshiper seeks a savior, a provider, a sustainer. But I'm the only God that's capable of giving any of those to you. In fact, I will give all all of those to you but you cannot divide your loyalty you belong to me worship me alone and the same is a message which is true for you isn't it this same lord who promised them that he would be a savior and a provider and a sustainer would say to you i am your savior i am your provider i am your sustainer and yet when you look in your own life you know don't you Like you have moved into the promised land and there's something about you that goes, I don't know, Lord. I just don't think it's quite enough. I need to find some other idols to help prop up or give to me the sense that my life has color in a world that's black and white. That you're actually taking care of me in ways I just don't know if you really are. That you're really going to carry me from this point to the the end of life and it's going to be enough. So we fill our world with things that are good things, but lesser things. And we take them and we make them ultimate things. And when we make those ultimate things our lowercase g-o-d-s, we're saying, Lord, I just don't think you're enough. God says, when you get to the land of Canaan, make sure you know I'm plenty. And then you get in verse 18 and 19. I think these are three little verses that are hard to understand. I in some ways wish they weren't here. And the reason I wish they weren't here is because it takes a lot of time to explain them. But God says, here they are. And so we need to say, what, what are they here for? These instructions are so obscure. 
And every time we've encountered something in the book of Exodus that's obscure, I've said to you, when you encounter something like this, make sure you know it's God saying to the people of Israel, don't be like the pagans who dwell in the land of Canaan. That's what he says here. The first instruction is to not blend uh, or mix blood sacrifices with anything leaven. And this is because ancient people, it didn't take them long. You cut the throat of a lamb and you realize that blood pours out of it. And so they quickly connected the fact that blood is the life source. So pagans in the land of Canaan began to serve up big glasses of blood. It's disgusting. But of course, that's not very palatable. So they began to mix the blood with their bread so that they could somehow unite themselves in a spiritual way with the sacrifice. And then they would say, well, maybe our God would like some of that too. And Yahweh says, no thanks. I'm good. In fact, I will not accept that sacrifice in the first place. Because yeast in the Bible, leaven in the Bible is symbolic for sin. And blood is symbolic for the payment of sin. And here's the point. It's not just don't be like the pagans. It's a reminder that if the Lord is to accept a sacrifice, it must be a righteous and acceptable sacrifice. Friends, Christ is the only righteous sacrifice. You cannot come to God First, offering your sin-tainted works and go, I hope that's acceptable to the Lord. And then maybe I'll sprinkle a little of the blood of Jesus on top of my works and hope that that's an acceptable sacrifice to God. God says, no. I'll take the blood of Christ and nothing else. Second obscure instruction. He says, don't let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Then he says, connected to that, bring the first fruits of your ground to the house of the Lord. In all the sacrifices of Israel, God said, bring all of the fat portions of this particular animal to me. But pagans thought, you remember, that they were feeding their gods. And so they would give him a little bit tonight. They would give him a little bit tomorrow. And they might spread out their grain offerings in the same way. The Lord says, you're not feeding me. Just bring it all to me. What's the message? The message is you do not need to withhold anything from me. I ask for all of it. Meaning I ask for all of your heart. You bring this full sacrifice. But we should be very clear. Today, those who belong to Christ have a different sacrifice in the New Testament And that is that God has already sacrificed to pay for your sins. And now he simply says, give back to me this heart of full devotion. Do not hold anything of yourself back from me. So I wonder if you would consider your own life. Think about whether or not you've compartmentalized some portion of your life and said, well, I'll give the Lord my Sunday morning. As long as it's not too long, I cannot give him my Saturday night. I will give him my schoolwork, but I will not give him my relationship with this guy or this girl. I I can live for the Lord in my exercise. I'm not going to live for the Lord in what I put in my body, whether food or drink. I'll live for the Lord in outward appearance, especially when others like the outward appearance. 
I don't want to live for the Lord in my inward thoughts or the things that proceed from my tongue. Then you get this third obscure instruction. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It was a pagan practice. They thought that they could stimulate the powers of nature to add more to their flocks, right? Because milk is what is used to nourish a young goat. And if we sacrifice that young goat, but we pour its mother's milk on it, well, certainly it's a mixture of life and death. Doug Stewart explains it like this. Since mother's milk was what made the goat kids grow big and strong, the folk theory developed that doe's milk employed in the process of a sacrifice would somehow impart strength to the goat flock, making the whole flock more fertile. Why is that a problem? Well, this kind of nonsense would lead the people of Israel to conclude that they had the power to shape their own destiny, that the power to live an abundant life could be found in magical practices or fertility religions. And the Lord says, no, your future and your hope lies surely with me. And so you get these three obscure comments and they make three important points for us. Number one, God only accepts a righteous sacrifice to pay for your sins. It's Jesus and it's nothing else. And then number two, in response, God asks for your wholehearted devotion to him. Do not hold anything back for everything that you have and everything that you are belongs to him. And then third, when you look around at your neighbors, it will feel risky to trust God with, with everything but only the Lord holds your future. He alone has what you need and provides for you an abundant life. Which is why we read Romans 12 verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God's people enjoy his promises through active participation. So we've done point one. And you go, whoa, boy, that was long. Point two and three are much shorter. Let's talk about them quickly. We're covering verses 20 through 33. You need to imagine that your entire life had been under slavery, under the brutal, harsh treatment of a Pharaoh. And God has redeemed you, and he's brought you out under the leadership of Moses. He's told you that he is going to, he's giving you these instructions on how to live before him. And all that's great. Except the path from the desert to the promised land is a path of uncertainty. And so God begins this section by saying, I am going to be present with you. That's what verse 20 is. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For not my name is in him. Who is this angel? Some people have thought that this is telling us that there's going to be a man whose name is Joshua who will ultimately lead the people into the promised land, but he seems more than a human. And then he goes on to say, listen to his voice. Well, maybe he's just an angel, except that when he goes on, he uses this word for defiance against the Lord, which is exactly the same word, not just for the angel, but for defiance against Yahweh himself. And then beyond that, he says, make sure you understand, my name is in him. 
So he's got the power also to forgive sins or to withhold forgiving sins. Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, who can forgive sins but God alone? So here's a being who speaks for God, who holds the power of forgiveness, who acts for God. Which is why Reformed scholars have come to the conclusion, rightly, this is most likely a pre-incarnate version of the Son of God. It's the second person of the Trinity. Here's Christ before he took on flesh, which is a discovery that is interesting and maybe clever, but it's not meant to just be interesting and clever. It's meant to be good news. Take a look. We'll scan quickly through the text. These are all the things the Lord will do. Verse 25, I will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from among you. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you. I will throw your enemies into confusion. I will make them turn and run. Verse 28, I will send hornets. Verse 31, I will set your border. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. What does the presence of God mean for the Hebrew people? It's an encouragement, right? Walk ahead in faith, but it's also a motivation. But if we are honest, there is something a little bit frightening here. Because that same presence, which is a terror to God's enemies, is no small threat to God's people as well. How come? Look at verse 22. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. You shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor nor shall you do what they do. Verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and with their gods. Verse 33. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so this kind of language, which is entirely Old Testament covenant language, it has extraordinary promises, and then it also has very careful warnings. And if you know the story of Joshua and Judges, you know the people of Israel actually do not fully and completely drive out the tribes of the land of Canaan. They do make some covenants along the way and you know that very quickly they will begin to to worship the people the the false gods of the land of Canaan so you look at this text and you go well God's presence did not produce faithful actions on the part of the people of Israel why not I mean God's people enjoy his promises through some active participation don't they you can tell even here that the, that the demands of faithfulness are so contingent that this is actually not going to go well. In fact, you can predict even here the need for divine grace, which is why this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The problem is not with the promises. These are great promises. The problem is with the sinful heart of the people. In their sinful flesh, they will not fully embrace these promises of God. And so, does God withdraw his presence from them? He should. Well, I was with you. I I was going to carry you all the way. But then along the way, you really were unfaithful. He should do that. But that's not what he does. In fact, he does exactly the opposite. To fix the problem of man's unfaithfulness, God cannot withdraw. He must draw closer still. 
God's pattern, your attention, God's presence, your action. Now we turn to this third point. It's so brief, but it's a physical battle with a spiritual picture. Because the lesson of taking the promised land is a lesson in the failure of human beings to be faithful. And the truth is, if God is to leave us to ourselves, we will never get there. You'll never make it to the promised land. But God says, I won't go. I'll stay with you. I love you too much. And so at the right time, God sent his son, this time not robed in the garb of an angel, but robed in the flesh of humanity. And he lived on earth among sinners like you and me. And he laid down his life to pay for your sins and mine. And then rising from the dead, he, through power, made possible for a reconciled relationship between unfaithful people like you and me and a faithful God. And you would think that when Jesus was done, he'd say, I'm done. But he ascends into heaven, and he still did not remove his presence, but he moved closer still by leaving his Holy Spirit in you. It was not enough that the Son of God should walk the face of the earth. He must now, through His Spirit, dwell squarely in the hearts of His people. Which is why in the New Testament, Paul's favorite word to describe who you are as a believer in Jesus is this. You're in Christ And only in Christ is God's presence no longer a terror. Here's a great comfort. In Christ, that close presence of God has put to death the flesh of your own disobedience and it now trains you to walk in new ways of life with God. Only this time, you're not wandering in disobedience. You are led in faithfulness toward the Lord If you're in Christ today, friends, you too are walking toward a promised land. But your promised land is not found in the dirt of this earth. It is found in the life to come. And your enemies are not the idols of the land of Canaan. They are the idols of your own heart. And you are not simply facing enemies on the outside. You're facing enemies from within. You're not facing simply physical people. You're facing spiritual powers and Satan who seeks to wage war against you. There was terror in the Old Testament. There's no more terror. Because Christ dwells in you through his spirit, and he says, you have nothing to fear. I'll take you there. Because you recognize, don't you, that God's presence is always with his people for their good So even though Christ is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for your sins, He is still present by His Spirit. So here's a physical picture in Exodus 23 where the people are invited to participate and yet sin made them powerless to fully embrace the promises. In Christ, your sins are removed So that you are now empowered by God's Holy Spirit to fully embrace the ongoing work of God.
in Christ. God's people more fully enjoy his promises through real active participation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the comforts of your word. We thank you for the ministry of your spirit. We pray that you